this message this morning that I'm getting ready to preach for the first time ever, uh, this message was birthed in me like six months ago, maybe eight months ago, somewhere in that time frame, Jordan. And I just I say that to you because I was doing a real deep study for a period of time in the book of Judges. I was just drawing into God, just you know, wanting to get close, study His Word. And then all of a sudden, some things jumped out at me in this book, and God began to really give me revelation and do a deep work. And then, the, then a message kind of burst out of that. I learned a long time ago that it's so much better for a pastor to approach God and His Word simply to go and be with Him and to know Him more rather than to try to go get a message. Does that make sense? It's like the more we saturate ourselves in the word of God and just keep our cup full, there's always a well that we can pull from and offer water from. That's the same way in our lives. The more full we are, the more we have what we need in times where we're doing what God's calling us to do. And so this message kind of got birthed out of this time with the Lord. And then it just he kind of had me incubating it. I'd go back to it and study it more and go back to it and study it more. And it just it never really felt preach ready. I don't know how else to explain that to you, but there's a point where a message feels preach ready. Um, and sometimes a message can feel preach ready, Paul, after a week. And sometimes it doesn't feel preach ready for months. And so this is one that's just been incubating for a while. And so I'm just like excited to get this thing out. All right. So open up your Bible to the book of Judges, chapter 2. We're going to begin uh, reading verses 1 through 6, and then we'll pray and dive in. It says, The angel of the Lord came up, came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, He's addressing the people of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? There's power in that question right there. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, God, we pray that you would bring forth the bread of life and that you would nourish our soul. I pray you would speak loudly and clearly today, like having a megaphone, God, that's just, you're speaking right into people's ears who are open to hear today, that this message would impact us at the very depths of our lives and that would ripple into every area of our existence, God. I ask that you would use me now, Lord, as your vessel, just speak through me. Use me, Lord, to be able to bring forth the word you've put in my heart. That's your word. Holy Spirit, only you can bring forth the message of truth. I don't have the ability to do that. God, please speak through me today. I yield to you and give you full permission to do what you want to do in this place right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take 
a journey through Judges. Now, this is just one message today, so I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of the book of Judges as we open it up. And then we're going to kind of dial in after that and sort of land at ground level and get into some particular details of one story in this whole book. So the history of Judges is that after the time of Moses and Joshua, so Moses and Joshua were prominent leaders in Israel. Most people are aware of that. Moses' leadership happened as the people of Israel were led out of captivity from the land of Egypt, out of bondage. But he spent most of his remaining time in the wilderness, in the desert for 40 years. And then Joshua took over as the new leader of Israel and led them into the promised land. And Joshua's remaining years were all about conquering the promised land and taking the inheritance that God had promised them. So there were a lot of battles. There were a lot of wars. It was a military campaign predominantly, that Joshua was, was responsible for leading. Now, in these verses that we opened up with, it's right before Joshua ends up passing on. Moses lived to be 120. Joshua lived to be 110. And so what happens is right before Joshua dies, there's this scene where the angel of the Lord comes up to the people of Israel and he gives this message. He says, you've come into the promised land. You've been fighting all of these battles. You've been, you know, warring against these enemies to take this land that I promised you. But you've compromised on some things. Why have you done this? And as a result, these enemies now remain. They're kind of lingering around in these places of the promised land where, in fact, God specifically instructed them that they would fully drive the enemy out of these areas and out of these territories. And so here's what I want to say to you today is that we have got to learn how to become a people in our lives who know how to go to war and even more specifically know how to fully drive the enemy out of every area of our life that he's trying to occupy. You see, the mistake that the people of Israel made is they, they won some battles, they conquered some enemies, but they they became sort of complacent or comfortable with leaving some of them to hang around for a while. And so here's the, the whole pattern of judges, is they go through these, these periods where it's cyclical. The book of Acts tells us that God gave judges to Israel for a period of 450 years. So if you think about this, there were judges that would rise up over a 400-plus year period of time. That's time spanned from the end of Joshua's leadership until Samuel the prophet came along and anointed Saul as king and the monarchy became established. So before the monarchy and after Joshua, during these 400 years, judges were brought up, were raised up by God to help deliver the people because they needed to be delivered. Because here was the pattern, is that they would go to battle, they would fight these enemies, they would conquer some victories, Pastor Mike, but then they would leave some of these enemies hang around, and, and they thought it was okay. Sometimes, you know, it just seems like it's easier 
to just finally stop fighting and just, you know, that's probably not going to hurt anything if we just leave a little bit of that around. Let me tell you something. When you leave a seed of the enemy to hang around, it's only going to grow. It's only going to rise up. And when it gets strong enough, it will rear its head against you or your children in your life. You have to fully run the enemy out of your life when he begins to come in and try and occupy a place that doesn't belong to him. You can't leave them. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Do you hear me? We do not settle. We do not become complacent with the, ah, it's okay, I've, I've fought long enough, I'm tired. You know, it's just, that's really not a big deal. And there's this little lingering thing of sin or this little lingering issue of a generational curse or whatever it might be. And we just kind of let it hang around in seed form. It, there's going to be a point where that thing comes back against us with fury and from the pit of hell. Because the enemy that Israel let hang around all through these 400 years, eventually they grew. They spread out. They mixed in with the culture. They got in there with all of the people of Israel. And then at some point, whew, the rudder shifts. And all of a sudden, they're worshiping their gods. They're performing their sacrifices. And now their heart has been turned away from the true God to some false idol. And the get this, the enemy that they should have fully defeated now becomes the enemy they serve. And oppression settles over the people. The enemy begins to oppress because now he's mounted a stronghold. Now he's strong enough and has enough leverage that he can actually enslave the people. So then they suffer for a number of years. They suffer from this oppression. And then the people finally cry out to God. They repent. They cry out. They pray. God hears their cry, hears their prayer, and he raises up a leader who we refer to in these books as a judge who delivers the people of Israel out of oppression and brings them out of the bondage. And they experience victory. But time and again, this cycle just continues to repeat itself. After the victory and after the peace settles in from the victory over the land, fast forward a number of years and then eventually Israel starts to slip right back into the same place again. Some of the judges that you probably would recognize the names of would be guys like Gideon, Samson. Those are two judges in particular. Uh, theologians will tell you that there are 12 judges. If you study the book of Judges, that's what you'll see. There's a little bit of a case for a 13th one, a guy named Abimelech, but you can read that and see what you think. There's 12 judges for sure, and there's six major and six minor judges basically because six of them have a whole lot of information, a whole lot of story, and then the other six, it's just very small amounts that are there. But here's what I also find very interesting and profound, is when Israel would experience oppression from the enemies over them, it usually says how many years the oppression was there. Uh, they were oppressed by this group of people for eight years, they were oppressed by this group of people for 18 years, whatever it was, and then once the judge would be raised up and the, the people would be delivered out of this oppression, then the period of peace that would rest over the land was usually multiplied beyond what the period of years they were oppressed was. 
So if they were in bondage for 20 years, then they were in freedom and peace for 40 years. If they were in bondage for eight years, they were in peace and freedom for 20 years. If they were in bondage for 18, they were in peace for 80. What does that tell us? It tells us that when the enemy robs something from us and we turn back to God, he restores what's been taken, but he also adds an an extra measure on top of that. Joel chapter 2 says that God will restore the years that the locust has stolen. See, the enemy has stolen some things from people in this room. He's taken some things from you. He's robbed you of some things that God had planned for you because somewhere along the line, he managed to get a place and occupy a foothold in our lives and he was allowed to stay. But praise God, I'm here to tell you today that if we turn these things over to the Lord and we begin to fight and run this enemy out of our lives, that God will restore to you what's been taken and he'll add a measure on top of that as well. I don't even fully understand that, but I have a great amount of faith in my God that he will do that for each and every person here who trusts and believes his word. And so as Israel is settling for allowing these people in their land, there's a particular group of people that I want to move into today called the Canaanites that they allow to stay. One of the things about the Canaanites that we see that makes them a formidable foe, a a, a strong enemy, is that they have chariots of iron. And and chariots of iron in battle were deemed to be like the, the most fierce representation of a military. If you had chariots of iron, like it was going to be very difficult to conquer that. In fact, Israel did not have chariots of iron as they fought. God did this really neat thing in Deuteronomy where he said, look, I don't want you to multiply horses. I don't want you to have chariots and all of these things because God said, I want you to trust me for the victory. This is powerful stuff. Whenever you see in the natural, it always looked like they were outnumbered. Every battle you see when you see Israel go to fight, almost every time you'll see that they were drastically outnumbered by their opponent to the natural eye. But when you add up all of the heavenly hosts and the angelic armies, you will see that those who fight for us are greater than those who fight for them, our enemies. And God said, I want you to keep your trust in me for the victory. So he says, you've got to run them out of the land. You've got to go to war and fight. But when you do, I will supernaturally assist you in the victory. You see, these judges that were raised up, they were just normal people like you and I. In fact, a lot of them just had problems. Look at Gideon. It says that he was the weakest member of the weakest clan before God raised him up. Do you remember that whole story? Like he needed to do the fleece deal a couple of times just because he was so scared and nervous, wanted to make sure that he heard God properly. And then you look at Samson. I mean, he was a glutton and a womanizer. Right. These guys, these people had problems, but God still used them and raised them up because they were willing to be used and they trusted God to do what it was that he promised that he would do. And it was on the basis of the trust in those promises that a leader could be raised up, that the people could follow and God would deliver them from the oppression that they were in. 
So the title of the message today, if you're taking notes, is When Leaders Lead. When Leaders Lead. So let's look at Judges chapter 1 for a minute. And let's talk about these Canaanites. In verse 19, it says, So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. So they were dispelling their enemy, they were conquering their enemies, but there was this particular enemy that had chariots of iron that they just couldn't seem to drive out. So they thought. But this is another classic example of it's, it's not good to go to war when you don't know what the promises that, are, have, that have been made truly are. Because God had already said back in the book of Joshua, He said, you will be strong enough to overcome these chariots of iron. Let's, let's, I don't know if I have that, but I'm going to read that in seven, chapter 17. Verse 18, he says, For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have iron chariots and are strong. And then another battle that Joshua was in, this is in chapter 11, it said that what Joshua did to those chariots of iron in those armies, it says that he hamstrung the horses, cut their hamstring muscles, and that he burned the chariots. So here's the point. There have already been victories won and enemies conquered that had chariots of iron. And they forgot about that or they didn't have faith that God would do that again. And you see that these Canaanites are still hanging around in this land. It's the, it, there's an incomplete conquest that's kind of lingering over the promised land now. God said, go in and take it. And they went in and took some of it, but then they kind of left some of the enemies around. So there's... There's a place that's given for him to still exist, and then he gets raised up stronger, and then he comes back to oppress the people. This is the classic pattern of the enemy in our life. If we don't run him out fully, cut the head off the thing, then it will just come back another day to fight against us. We have to fully run that thing out. Listen to what it says about the Canaanites, chapter 1, verse 27. The Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Listen, you have to understand this. We have a determined enemy. It says that he is only out to steal, kill, and destroy. Peter says, your adversary, the devil, he roars around like a lurking lion, seeking whom he may devour while he is on the prowl. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't stop. He has demonic forces and he is going to continue coming at the people of God to destroy the works of God in our life until he's thrown in the lake of fire. Until his end comes, he will always be about that mission. We have a determined enemy, which is perfectly fine when you realize that we already have the victory. And when you trust that God will bring the victory as you go to fight him, the enemy in your life, then you will begin to see that supernatural assistance that God promises to run the enemy right out of your lives. 
We need Christian homes and families that are running the enemy right out of their home, right out of their lives, right out of their children's lives, and going and running the enemy out of our communities. Not going to let him set up shop in this town. Not going to let him set up shop on that street down there. We are going to run this enemy right out of this place because God says we have the authority to do that. We're not going to settle. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to let this thing linger around at all to come raise up and get stronger and then oppress us or oppress our children or our children's children. We're going to defeat this thing now, here, today, and we're going to run this thing right out of this town in this life. So we see here that they're allowed to hang around. And so this is what happens. This is the part that really began to jump out at me when I was studying this is we, we know God says that he will work all things together for our good, right? I mean, that is a powerful promise that those who are set on the Lord's will, God will work all things together for our good. That is a miraculous thing that he can weave our past and all of our mistakes and everything. He can weave it all and turn it into something beautiful. He makes beauty from ashes. Only our God can do that. And so the idea that these enemies were able to hang around during this time, it actually afforded God the opportunity to use the enemies to do something profitable in the lives of his people. Listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 20, it says, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. So God says, I'm going to use these enemies. And I'm going to use them to do something. I mean, even David had an experience. There's this dude named Shimmy that was chasing David along and cursing him. And they're like, you want us to go? He's like, no, look, God's using him. He's doing something in his life. Don't even worry about it. God's got it. We don't need to fear him. You know, God can actually use our enemies to do something in our lives. He says, I'm leaving them around because I want to test them. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. I hope this jumps out at you like it did at me. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. He's saying, there's a generation that doesn't even know how to fight. There's a generation that doesn't even know how to go to battle. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use these enemies. I'm going to use them to produce a situation where the people are going to rise up and they're going to learn what it looks like to go to war and run an enemy out of their land. 
I'm going to teach them something through this. They may have allowed these enemies to stay around. They may have allowed them to hang out and get a place. But I'm going to use those enemies in the lives of my people because I'm going to teach them who've grown soft, who've grown complacent, who are no longer fierce and strong like the armies of God are supposed to be. And I'm going to teach them what it looks like to go to war and be battle ready. If i got to leave some enemies hanging around for them to rise up and get strong, and that's what's going to awaken my people, then I will allow that so that they can become the people that they've always been destined to be. You see, I don't even fully understand this, but there's a reality that Satan has been conquered, that he's been defeated, but he's still hanging around, roaming the prince of the power of the air for a little while until it's his end. So he's already done, and he's trying to get in our lives, but we have the authority to say, you ain't coming in, you're not going to have this, and you're not going to overtake that, but in order to do that, you're going to have to fight him. That's what I'm trying to say to you today. You have got to get strong. You are going to have to know how to fight the enemy and run him out of your life, or he's going to come in and he's going to set up shop. And he's going to begin to oppress you, and it's only going to get stronger and stronger over the years as long as he's allowed to stay. And God says, I know you can beat him. I know you can do this because I am with you, and I promised you the victory. But I need you to march into battle with your armor and with your sword and have faith that I'm going to take you and deliver you from this situation. You see, sometimes it's hard for me, I don't know about you, when God looks at me and I hear him say, I see something that you don't see in yourself. Because I see my spirit in you, and I see my power in you, and I know what I'm promising you I will do for you. So when I think about how I don't have what it takes, and then God says, oh yes you do, that's sometimes a little bit of a scary place to be. It can be a little bit intimidating, but that's why we walk by faith and not by sight, because we step out into a realm that is supernatural, that is not natural. We leave the natural behind to go do victory and go do battle in a place where God says his promises exist. Hallelujah. He says, I know you can do it. I know you can beat them. I remember one time when I was younger, I was probably about 12 years old. Uh, I was in Boy Scouts, and there was this, this trip that we had been preparing for in New Mexico. It was a hiking trip through the mountains for like two weeks. We were so psyched out. And we took this bus, and we drove all the way down there. It was like a 20-hour something bus ride. And then we set up the first day. We were in camp, kind of getting all our supplies ready. And the second day, we were supposed to head out. And about the time at the end of the first day is the reality of what was getting ready to happen started to set in on me. And I started getting really, really scared. I started getting homesick. I started thinking, oh my gosh, what have I done? Like, I don't want to do this. Two weeks? What was I thinking, you know? So I said, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to call my mom. And <laughs> just, she's just going to come get me, you know? <laughs> my 12-year-old brain, the logic that I was processing so I called the house and I said, I forget who, was, I, who I talked to, whatever, figured out mom, they weren't at home. They were actually down at the lake house. Oh, that's great. You guys took a lake vacation without telling me. Wow, that's wonderful. So that just made it even worse, right? So I called down to the lake and I get a hold of my mom 
I'm like, Mom, I don't, I don't want to do it. You know, I don't think I can. I'm just like, I want to come home. And I'm thinking she's going to just like get in the car and come get me. Like a good mother should, you know. Just say, Lord. And, and she just was like, well, honey, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. I can't come get you. And my heart just sank. My mother, all oh, people, is going to leave me out here. But I, I look back now and I realize that, you know, she knew I could hack it. She knew I could do it. And I didn't want to. There was that moment when I was face to face with the reality of the crucible that I was getting ready to go into, that I wanted to bail out and go back and get out of there. But she knew I could do it, so she didn't come right in and just jerk me out of the fire. She let me walk through it and get stronger on the other end as a result of that. By day three or four, I was having the time of my life. By the end of the two weeks, I felt like a man. I mean, I went in a boy and I came out a man. And I think that there's so many times when we're just, we would love to have a land free of enemies, wouldn't we? I think that's because we're really wired for heaven, where there is no enemy present. And so there's a part of us that kind of would love to have that. But the reality is that God looks upon the lives of his children and says, no, you can do this. Nope, we're going to win this victory. You go to battle, and I will supernaturally assist you in accomplishing what you can't do on your own. But you are going to have to take authority to run this enemy out of your land if you're going to fully possess the inheritance that I'm promising you. You see, God has an inheritance for each and every one of us. It begins in this life, and it's fulfilled in the next. But in order to possess that inheritance, guess what? We've got to run the enemy out of our life. That's part of it. We've got to take territory and push him out. And so these judges were being raised up over these periods of hundreds of years, 12 of them, different times. One particular judge that I want to go to today and I want to really draw attention to is a judge by the name of Deborah. Deborah was the only female judge. It says that she was also a prophetess which is pretty powerful because the gift of prophecy is a spiritual gift that God gives by way of the Holy Spirit. It says that God will give spiritual gifts when and how and to whom he chooses. So there's no limit, but God is the one who decides how, when, and where it gets dispersed. And, and so this woman, Deborah, is actually raised up as a judge and she's given a gift of prophecy and I believe that in many cases, the anointing of spiritual gifts come upon people who are not necessarily the most eloquent or most magnificent in the eyes of people, but are just willing hearts who trust God that he will do what he says he's going to do. And so Deborah gets raised up in this period of time where these Canaanites that have these iron chariots that have been allowed to stick around are now as fierce and as determined as ever and they're oppressing God's people at a level they've never done before. Let's get into chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read a few verses here. I'm going to read a lot of this story to you because I want to saturate you with this word today and I really love for you to study these verses on your own through this week. Chapter 4, it says, When Ehud was dead, that was another 
judge prior to Deborah, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Kazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Karoshet, Kagohim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Yabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labitot, that name isn't going to be making the top 20 boys' names in 2020, I can promise you that, Labitot, was judging Israel. So Deborah was a prophetess uh, judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel would come up to her for judgment. So the Canaanites have mounted this 20-year oppression now. It, it is no longer just a little enemy just hanging around. This enemy is now has his hand and his foot over God's people, and he is oppressing them. He's been doing it and growing it for 20 years. Deborah gets raised up as a prophetess and as a judge, and she's leading the people, and God begins to speak to her about now is the time for you to lead these people and for me to deliver them out of this oppression that they've been in. So let's continue on, verse 6. So Deborah sent and called for Barak, not Obama, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali. So Barak is the commander of Israel's army. He's kind of the general. And she said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, so here she begins to prophesy now, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera. Remember, he's the commander of the Canaanite army. The commander of Yabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman." Now, it's a little unclear Brock's response, the reason for that. It, it, we're not sure, was he afraid of Sisera? Was he scared and so he didn't want to go? And he's like, well, if I'm going to go, you're going to come with me. Or maybe he just had so much faith produced when he heard the word of the Lord prophesied from Deborah that he thought, I want that prophetess alongside of me when we go into battle. Not sure which one it was exactly, but obviously she goes along with him. Now, here's the important point you have to understand. It says that Barak takes with him 10,000 soldiers, okay? And Deborah goes with him, the judge and the leader. Canaanites have 900 chariots. No chariots in Israel. 900 which means, Dan, they probably had, doesn't say how much their army added up to, probably tens of thousands, maybe over 100,000. 
They were vastly outnumbered. So here's what you have to realize. If God didn't show up and do exactly what he said he was going to do, deliver them from the hand of the Canaanite, they were marching into certain death. Deborah, the leader, imagine 20 years of oppression. Imagine how much worse it would be if the 10,000 best warriors and the leader of the land all get taken out in this battle as well. They're marching into certain death, but they're hanging everything on their faith that God's going to do exactly what he just said he was going to do. They, 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 they charge into battle. Listen to what happens. Remember, God will supernaturally assist you in the victory in ways you cannot do on your own. You have to see that through your eyes of faith as you're walking into the battle. You have to see what God can do is beyond what you can ever do in order to claim and lay hold of and have faith for the victory that he's already promised. So here's what happens. Let's jump down to verse 14. So Deborah said to Barak, get up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? I love the faith in this woman right here. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera, means destroyed, overwhelmed, Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. Listen, they defeated the chariots and the soldiers vastly outnumbered that had chariots. They, they defeated them with swords. Now listen, Sisera alighted, means he fled from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Karosheth, Kagoyim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. They're hunting this enemy down and they're going to finish him once and for all. Now in chapter 5, I'm going to read a little bit of it in a second for you, but listen, chapter 5 is a really interesting book in the whole Bible and in, in Judges. And it's interesting because it's considered a victory hymn or a victory song that is sang by Deborah. And it's very poetic. And poetic books can be hard to interpret, okay? But it's very poetic. And she is declaring a lot about how the victory was achieved when she sings this song. And one of the things it says, remember, 900 chariots, tens of thousands of Canaanites, 10,000 Israelites with swords rushing down. They overwhelm the enemy. How does that happen, right? They overwhelm him. Listen, it says in chapter 5 that when the battle began, that the stars from heaven were fighting against Sisera and his army. Oh, hallelujah. Do you know what that means when it says stars from heaven are fighting against Sisera and his army? Stars mean angels and angelic hosts and the heavenly realm that are dispatched by God and that are fighting as part of his army. It says that the river Kishon that flowed through the valley that they were fighting in, where they could never run these chariots out before, when they went into battle, a monstrous storm began. And the river Kishon flooded the whole valley and the chariots whew, just sank right into the ground. They were rendered completely useless. 
they were confused and they were overwhelmed and Israel struck them down one by one by one with the edge of the sword. God was supernaturally assisting the victory. Hallelujah. But listen, we got to keep going because Sisera is trying to get away. Who is Sisera? What does he represent? He is the head of the army. And let me just tell you, if you don't cut the head of the enemy off and you leave him around, he will grow again and come back one day. So Sisera flees. And here's what happens. There's a woman named Yael. And she's in an area where Sisera flees through. And she is an ally to Israel, but Sisera doesn't realize that. And so listen, let's, let's read what happens here, because this is, this is good stuff. Verse 17, Sisera fled away on foot to a tent of Yael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. For there was peace between Yabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Yael went out to meet Sisera. So this lady comes out, meets him, says to him, turn aside uh, and come into me and do not fear. And when he had turned aside and went into her tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then she said to him, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there a man in here? You shall say no. And then Yael, Haber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer. We're about to get a little uh, rated here on this version, so just so you know. Then Yael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down to the ground for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. I guess he did. Yeah, I guess he did. I read this story and I thought, dear Lord, if I ever tell Katie that I'm thirsty, go grab me water. And she brings me back a warm cup of milk. I'm sleeping like this all night. I'm just telling you. So here's what, here's what happens. The head of the enemy, Sisera, he is fleeing. He's running. He's trying to stay alive. And he's only going to circle around and hang out in this land if he's allowed to. And Yael gets her moment. Remember what Deborah said, by the hand of a woman, right? And Sisera falls asleep, laying there in that tent. Yael walks up, and she drives the stake right through his head, into the ground where it can't even move. Why is that so important? Why do I tell you that? Because there's some powerful lessons to take out of this. She understood that in order to kill this enemy, she had to go for his head. She had to drive his head into the ground. You see, our enemy is not allowed to be where we take authority and tell him that he cannot be. He is not allowed to stay in places where we go to war and battle and refuse to allow him to stay. But if he gets a place in our lives and we allow him to hang around and occupy a space and don't cut the head of the thing off that's at our doorstep, 
that enemy will be a threat to us and what God has for us for as long as he continues to be there. We've got to fight the enemy and we've got to run him out of our lives. We've got to run him out of our kids' lives and we've got to run him out of our communities. God has given us authority to do this. You understand that? We are a people meant for war. Listen to some of this language. Jesus says himself in Matthew 11, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Means you have got to be an aggressive warrior to advance the kingdom of God in and through your life. It says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We have all kinds of weaponry and we have all kinds of armor. Everything about the Bible tells us we've got to be battle ready. It says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this present age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Tells us that we should serve ourselves as instruments of righteousness to God, which literally means that we become weapons for war in God's hand. Do you understand that? We are warriors and we must be ready to fight. We can't sit back on the sideline. We can't disengage from this. We can't become so self-absorbed in our own life that we think the fight doesn't matter for us. Somebody else out there will deal with it. If we don't run the enemy out of our lives, there will be a place for him at our doorstep that he will take and begin to oppress us in every way he possibly can. Deborah raises up during a time and conditions where things are harsh. And I don't understand this, but for some reason, it seems like when things get really, really difficult and really, really tough, people seem to turn to God in the most significant ways. Have you noticed that? I can't tell you how many people have come to me, have, have sat with me that are battling with addiction, dealing with a pending divorce, some kind of a betrayal, some kind of a death, some sort of a horrible situation. And in these moments, they are so fixed and devoted to running to God and staying as close to Him as they can. But then all of a sudden, in some cases down the road, not all, but some cases, they will become sort of complacent and they'll drift away once some of the heartache and some of the difficulty subsides and peace sets in over the land. They start to kind of drift away and go back into the things that they once did and then they just go through that same cycle all over again. You know how we live when times are harsh and difficult when we run to God is the same way that we run to God and stay close to Him when there's peace over our land. Listen to what happens in this chapter 5 when Deborah is she's singing this victory song. She's describing the conditions that were present when she was raised up by God. Verse 6. In the days of Shamgar... Son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along by the byways. They were scared. They couldn't take the highways because they, they, were, they were afraid of what would happen. So they took the byways so they couldn't be seen. They're, they're living scared. It says that village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods then there was war in the gates. Now listen to this. This is huge. The gates represent 
the place where battles were fought. It represents the place where people would go to exercise judgment and exercise authority. This is the place where the battles were happening. And it says here that the, there was war in the gates. Listen, not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Where are the warriors? Where are the soldiers? There's nobody even at the gates. The, the, there's a war at our doorstep. The enemy is here. He's at the gates. And there's no soldier in Israel armed and ready for battle. And then I, Deborah, arose. God lifted me up. And the people went out and we overtook our enemy. Let's pray that from now on we are ready and present at the gates and armed and ready for battle. Not lax or laid back or complacent anymore. Because if we do, we will be overrun. Chapter 5, verse 2. Listen to how she opens this up. When leaders lead in Israel, when people willingly offer themselves, oh, bless the Lord. When we rise up, when we get strong, and we be the people that we are called to be, then watch and see how God won't continue to do exactly what he promises that he will do which is allow us to achieve victory and run the enemy right out of our lives. We've got to be a people who know how to go to war. Amen. I, I want so much to help people through the word, through the teaching, through everything we do. But I, I, have, to, I have to say this to you. When you go out there, when you go and engage in the life that God has called you to and you meet the enemy, you have to know how to fight. You have to know how to go to battle. When he starts coming at you, you need to be able to pull out your weapon of prayer. You need to be able to stand in faith and know what this word says. That's why it's called the word is a sword in our hand. You've got to know how to wield it. You've got to know how to call the troops and say, hey, grab a sword, grab a shield. We've got a fight going on, and I need you over here. I need some friends around me who pray for me and lift me up and encourage me. I'm going through something right now. The enemy's here, and I need some help. And people say, no problem. I'm on my way. Where's the battle? I'll be there. My sword and shield are ready. I never put them down. I carry them everywhere I go. Let's do this thing. Let's run this enemy out of your life right now. And absolutely insist, insist that evil cannot stay. We do not overcome evil with evil. We come overcome evil with good. Hallelujah. We've got to be a people who know how to go to war. Amen.